On this episode, Suncast is here to help us discuss Dark Phoenix doing pretty badly, Japan having an interesting use of rental cars, and I'll backtrack on the whole Google Home Nest situation. Plus, Chris is going to do a netcast as he taps that app talking about MyFitnessPal. This and more in this week's show. I'm Haley from Gallifrey Public Radio, a Doctor Who fandom podcast and part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. This is the official GunnaGeek.com show. Here, we're a bunch of geeks talking about geeky things. Each week, we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Stephen. But what if I'm in the mood for a T-Swift story? Chris. I've heard the X is going to give it to you. And SP. That's how we roll on Gonna Geek on Monday night. We get crazy! Gonna Geek Productions presents the official GunnaGeek.com show. Welcome to episode 294 of the official GunnaGeek.com show. I am Stephen John Drew and I am pleased to say the fantastic, the wonderful, the you wonder why he has no hair on his head. Chris Farrell is here tonight. Well, the reason my hair is gone is because my brain has expanded so much it has pushed it out of my head. I'm super smart. <laughs> and unfortunately, Stargate Pioneer is not here, but he one that is going to roll here on Monday night is Suncast. Howdy. What up? Suncast, uh, we are pleased to have you here. Are you? We're a little bit happy about it. Uh, earlier today, Suncast, <laughs> Suncast was messaging me, and he, I believe that he summarized nicely the time of year that we're in, and it was something to the effect of, wow, summer tech news sucks. It was pretty much exactly those words, and uh, yeah, you know what? I have to say, the tech news weekly, or, or the tech news lately not on Tech News Weekly, is is been pretty terrible lately. So, yeah, it's been bad. More so than usual. That's true. Uh, yes, SP is away this week. He's off having some family fun, but uh, we're pleased to say he should be back next week. And hopefully the the main trio, there's always an honorary seat there for you, Suncast, but the main trio should be reunited next week, in theory. Wait, you're bringing Wing back? <laughs> uh suncast for those who may not have checked out the show before uh and maybe not heard about you or seen you or watched you from afar where exactly can they usually find you you can find me uh part of the gfq network go to gfqnetwork.com we have a whole bunch of shows over there that i have a little bit of part in uh, we have wrestling on there all sorts of cool stuff uh check it out we got podcasts it's gfqnetwork.com What's a podcast? Is this a new thing? What new thing? I, I'm not sure. I, I don't You're know. You're thinking of netcasts. That's a new thing. Oh, I was thinking of a netcast. I forgot about a netcast. Netcasts are definitely uh, the future of things. They are because God. everyone loves to create a specific term that only one group uses and then try and push it as an industry standard. You know, uh, I think that netcasts are required to run on net meeting. I think that that's the requirement for a netcast. <laughs> you know how you make netcasts uber cool? You change the E to a three. Uh, and then they're super cool. 
Cool. Can we go ahead yeah. and drop a letter or two? Because that's the other cool thing to do. Yeah, it's in 3 t c s t s Perfect. Netcast. Awesome. Netcasts. Well, let's go ahead and move to the news part of the official gunnageek.com netcast. All right, we're going to start off with uh, Chris Farrell's news because Chris Farrell was away last week and he was very sad when he wasn't here because we mostly spent the episode talking about him and how terrible he, I mean, how good he was. And we, and we know that he was sad to miss out on that conversation because you always do like to talk about yourself, don't you, Chris Farrell? You reap what you sow. If I'm not here, I deserve to take all my comeuppance. Fine. There's actually two things in life that Chris Farrell is known for talking about. Number one is himself. That's the number one thing. He's always happy to talk about himself. Number two is Dark Phoenix. Yes, of course it is Dark Phoenix because we all know how much I love any movie about the Phoenix because they're all complete poo-poo. <laughs> so a phrase from JS, complete poo-poo. So we do know that Dark Phoenix, the final X-Men movie under Fox, because I don't think we're ever going to see New Mutants, did drop, what, like a month ago? And the early reviews were not positive, I think is the fair way to put it. Pulled in like a 23% on Rotten Tomatoes, had the, sh- the smallest opening weekend of any of the X-Men movies. Things didn't look good. I'm not bringing this news up to dog on Dark Phoenix. There's probably reasons why, but... Uh, Forbes was reporting that this last weekend, Dark Phoenix was slated to earn about $430,000 the weekend's box office, bringing the U.S. domestic total up to $64.628 million. Interesting fact, this is less than what X-Men Apocalypse earned in its first weekend. So uh, things a little dire for X-Men and Dark Phoenix. And it means the movie is now going to finish with a worldwide take just a bit over $250 million against a budget of $200 million. So hey, on paper, that sounds great. That means the movie's profitable. We're going to make money. Not necessarily, because there's a lot of money that goes into advertising costs, things like that. And normally, in order to be considered profitable, movies have to make more than double their budget. Dark Phoenix, if it's lucky, will earn approximately 1.25% of its budget. Now, here's where the fun comes out. Here's where I might be throwing some shade. For comparison, remember... Fant Four Stick that came out a few years ago, the uh, gritty reboot of the Fantastic Four that we all went, why are they making this? Well, it earned $167.9 million against its budget of $120 million, meaning it made 1.39 times what it cost to make. So Fant Four Stick is more profitable than X-Men Dark Phoenix, which just kind of blows my mind. In order for Dark Phoenix to become profitable at this point they say would have to make 278 million dollars total which seems nearly impossible so yeah things are looking good so the question is why why is it that fantastic four is more successful than dark phoenix is it because fans didn't want a dark phoenix movie is it because they weren't excited by the story is it fan apathy because they went oh well disney gets these characters back not right after this movie who gives a crap? Or is it a combo of all of these things? What do you guys think? Why is Fantastic Four more profitable than a Dark Phoenix X-Men movie? It's not Marvel. I was absolutely just about to say that. <laughs> but not as Fantastic Four. <laughs> no, but here's the thing is like Marvel is even more powerful right now on the heels 
of the conclusion of uh, what are we calling it? Chapter one. Is that what it is? Or phase three. Phase, one, phase, phase three. Yeah, but you know, what are they calling the bookend? They're calling it all like there was a big global term for, you know, this being a new chapter in the world of Marvel. Anyways, whatever it is, we, we've now hit that end of that sort of first set of stories that they were supposedly trying to tell. And I think that people are probably a little burned out of superhero movies in general that aren't tied to that. I think that the, people are became very invested, especially if you see the box office numbers. And I think that... um now we're, we don't have room for something like this. It, it, I think the geeks aren't going to go because they know that it's the end of the line for those stories. I think that the X-Men series in general hasn't delivered, so there's no, no real big fan base. And so you couple that with people just wanting to stick just with the main Marvel, and, and it's a recipe for a disaster right now. Fantastic Four was what, two years ago now, you said? Oh, it was probably more than that. It was probably three or something like that. I honestly don't remember. It's a big change, a big change in the landscape of comic book movies three years ago to now. It's a big. It's very different now. So I definitely think that uh, that probably is a large portion of it. Myself, I don't know. Uh, Suncast, you, I know, are the uh, business analyst here. <laughs> Problem with with the X Men stuff is that the, the stories just aren't that interesting i think i think it's an it's an all right cast it's an all right story it's an all right movie there's just nothing all that crazy about it that makes you want to go and see it and that's the problem is that it's an all right superhero movie it's better than a lot of the dc stuff currently but it's not one of those movies that is on your must-see list. It's not like a summer blockbuster. Nobody's running out to see this movie. People are just... It's, eh. I mean, so... I will ask this question and then feed into the point I want to make. When's the last X-Men movie that you remember people being like, holy crap, this is awesome. Everyone should go see it. What's the last one you guys remember? Uh, probably First Class. That's what I was going to say. First Class. And what changed after First Class? Matthew Vaughn was no longer attached. They brought on a new director. Matthew Vaughn, who pretty much got people interested again in the X-Men by going back to the 60s, sparking back to something original with it, adding a new flair to things. He moved on, They moved on to a different director. And while Days of Future Past was all right, I think a lot of that was the spectacle of Wolverine and Sir Ian McKellen and Sir Patrick Stewart doing their final, what we thought at the time, final appearances in those roles, things like that. So I think when Matthew Vaughn left, they kind of reverted back to, let's go back to sort of the formula that worked before. And then they even brought Brian Singer back. And I was like, why? Now, that being said, I'm kind of glad Matthew Vaughn left because it gave me two Kingsman movies, which I think are vastly superior to anything the X-Men have done in years because they're an incredibly fun movie. And I don't think the last few X-Men movies, other than like Quicksilver's scenes, were fun. Could it be something to do with Wolverine? Yeah. It certainly plays a part, I think. I don't know. I just haven't really had much personal hype myself. And I guess it's probably because I didn't find the stories that interesting and really want me to continue. Like, I don't know. First class was fun. I really enjoyed it. I thought that it was a great ride. I was looking forward to seeing Jennifer Lawrence and the other characters uh, in more stuff. But I definitely felt like it disconnected me from that 
first franchise because even though they're intertwined all that stuff it, it it's different and i don't know maybe that's a factor too i think them trying to combine their timelines and then correct everything was difficult because remember they changed the timeline finally with days of future past when they kind of merged what we knew from the original singer movies into what we got out of first class when wolverine somehow went back in time instead of kitty pride like it's supposed to be in days of future past but wolverine's bigger cash cow for movies so i sort of get what they were doing there essentially what it comes down to is that they haven't given us anything to really care about Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do you know what it is i think that it's probably due to the fact that uh the gunnageek.com networks uh legends of shield doesn't have a lot of dedicated material towards it like yes they talk about it but if they were like a a fan cast or they were like ranting and raving about it all the time, then it would definitely, definitely pick up and that would be why, but I'm pretty sure that it's the fact that uh, legends of shield doesn't talk about it all the time. I'm pretty sure that uh, they are single-handedly responsible for this slump. Sounds, sounds likely Uh, I will (laughs) go with that. Now, I guess it'll just be interesting to see what this does for Marvel's plans with the X-Men. Kevin Feige at one point said they had no plans even in phase four for it. How long do they put them on the shelf so that they can start fresh, for lack of a better term? We'll just have to wait and see. Phase four is going to be the Fantastic Four. That's what it's going to be. Yeah, didn't you love it when they showed up in Spider-Man Far From Home and shook everyone's hand and said, we're here, we're back, deal with it. Mm-hmm. I loved that. It was oh, great. Wait, I spoiled you. It was great. Moving on to the next news point here. You said, Suncast, you have some international news. do 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 international news. do 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 yeah, international. Because everybody loves Japan, so how about a Japan story? I have been waiting 294 episodes for a Japan story. It's true. So, uh, as everybody knows, there's there's all these ride-sharing services out there, and some of them, you know, they let you rent a car to go wherever you want to go. And so this is a big popular thing in Japan, where cars are a necessity at times to get from one place to another. That's gener- generally what people do when they rent a car, right? Well, a Japanese car sharing service called Oryx discovered that after finding out many of its customers were renting its cars, but then not driving them. Basically, they returned them with no mileage taken from them. And so the company was wondering, what is going on here? Why are people renting our cars and just not driving them? So what they ended up doing was uh, putting out a survey to some of its customers to find out what it is that they were actually doing when they rented their vehicles. So what ended up coming back was that a lot of people were renting their cars to take naps, for work, for storage, to charge their phones, to eat, to talk on the phone, to watch TV, to dress up for Halloween, and to even, yes, practice rapping. So this is all very interesting, the fact that this company was like, oh, we have this whole new market now for what people want to use our vehicles for. Because a lot of times people were like, well, this one guy said, usually the only place I can take a nap while visiting clients is a cyber cafe in front of us, in front of the station. But renting a car to sleep in is just a few hundred yen, which is about several dollars, almost the same as staying in the cyber cafe. So for a lot of these people that are renting to do their work or whatever, it makes more sense for them just to rent the space that the vehicle uh, provides than it is to actually drive it somewhere. So this is all just very interesting that there's technically a market out there just for mobile spaces. What do you guys think about this? 
this is cool. And this is arguably a win for these rental car companies because what's the biggest depreciating thing with their fleet? It's wear and tear. They're getting no wear and tear on these vehicles other than people using the interior. So they're renting out a car. People are not doing anything besides maybe turning it on to charge their phone and heat or cool the inside. And they're just sitting there. So you're burning gas and you're putting a little wear on your alternator and your starter. This is kind of a win. And like you said, this is a really interesting approach for how people get some time and space to themselves in what is, especially in some of the bigger cities, a very densely populated area where you don't have a lot of time. You don't have a lot of space to yourself to do things. It's kind of ingenious. Whoever first thought of this being like, wait, I could just go rent a car and hang out in this car for three hours, not move get my work done, be able to relax and, you know, spread out, be able to put my arms out and not touch anyone or run into a wall and just have my own cool space. It's kind of like a neat extension of the whole capsule hotel thing you see in Japan. Now you just have exactly a a vehicle office kind of thing because capsule hotels fascinate me, by the way. I've watched tons of YouTube videos on them. I'm like, if I ever go to Japan, I'm at least spending one night in a capsule hotel. This is just the next extension. It's the capsule hotel on wheels. Uh, I have a few points on this. Number one, uh, definitely start uh, uh, marketing this towards podcasters, mobile podcast studio right there. YouTubers. Hey, YouTubers, that too. Number two, uh, I think that there's a bigger win in the fact that people aren't actually driving these around damaging the vehicles because that happens with rental cars all the time, crashing into things, right? People drive worse in a rental car than they do their actual vehicle. And three... It's going to stop as soon as somebody dies in there from asphyxiation because they don't have enough ventilation. <laughs> so that's going to end up happening at some point. So, so there well, you go. Well, gee, thanks for bringing it back down, Steve. And here we are excited about the ingenuity of human beings coming up with new ways to do stuff. And Steve's like, someone's going to die. And they're going to ruin it for everyone. And we go, oh. That's me. That's me. Uh, no, I think... Debbie that- Downer. <laughs> I do think it's interesting. I think that definitely... Um, there could be some problems with potentially people using them not as they're meant to be used. And like, is there like a liability with somebody falling asleep in there and, you know, in a public place and it's not actually a housing place. I don't know. It's obviously going to be very different uh, yes, in- uh, uh, to take a nap. It's just downright weird. I don't want to be in public taking a nap. You know, here's the thing. I don't fall asleep on airplanes for that same reason, but there are lots of people that do. And airplane airplane is a little less public than just a car no! out in the open. No, it's not because you put the seat back in the car and you're going to have people driving by, walking by, not maybe not even noticing you in an airplane. You're right there, possibly snoring. People could pick your pocket and you wouldn't know because if you're falling asleep on a plane, you need to be used to all of this movement and stuff. This is and weird. And, you know, I, I think that this is better than falling asleep on a plane, but I'm still saying I don't even sleep on planes for the same sort of logic. <laughs> There's a guy I used to work with that had an hour and a half commute each way, and it was not unheard of that he would take his lunch break and he would march his happy butt out to his car, put his seat back all the way and take a nap for 30 minutes because he was tired because he was get up at 430 every morning to come to work. So he would spend his lunch break passed out in his car. This does not seem strange to me. So I can I can sort of one up that Um, there was a guy. He didn't last very long, but he was like day, (laughs) day three of being in a training class. And uh, yeah, my colleague walked back to the training class and was like, OK, let me get set up. And what does he see sleeping under the desk in the training class was uh, sure enough, somebody sleeping on their break in the training class. Weird. So weird. Did you guys get a bunch of Sharpies and drawn on, on his face? Obviously, that's what you have to do. 
Yeah, how many of those things on his face were phallic shaped? Moving on to the next news point here. Uh, <laughs> it's time for me to backtrack. This is one of Chris's beep, favorite times. Beep, beep. Sorry, that was the backup alarm. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that it looked like Google was going to be reverting away from the Nest name. This was something that we discussed quite in length because it didn't make a lot of sense because the whole concept of Google having their own name, but then trying to go to Nest with a couple products like the Nest Hub and then go apparently going back to the Google Home. Well, so what you're saying is Google is schizophrenic. <laughs> <laughs> what ended up happening here was that Google sent out earlier this week, they, they emailed out, blasted it out five days ago, the day that we record this. So uh, July 3rd, it said families around the world have embraced smart devices designed to make their homes more helpful. But the smart homeware products are meant to work together seamlessly to create helpful whole home experiences is still too complex. And you're going to love how they're going to solve that complexity. We believe we? All, all our connected home devices and services should work in a way that makes experiences more helpful, simple, and secure. So Nest and Google Home are joining together under one brand to make that happen and give you more help at home. Now, are you ready for the complete original idea of putting the Google name with the Nest name together. Just, we have a whole new name. Give me a sec to prepare myself here, Stephen. I'm, I'm a little too amped up with excitement for what they're going to do here. So introducing what name could they possibly come up with <laughs> introducing Google Nest? Yes, that's the email <gasps> oh that they blasted gosh. out. I know. You don't say. Apparently, they have settled on for now the name Google Nest. So not Google Home, not Nest, but Google Nest together. Why not Nest Google? <laughs> Why not Google Nest Home? Or Nest by Google? Or Home Nest? The day before, maybe I can eventually get out my point. The day before <laughs> uh, this happened, we ended up actually noticing that I noticed it. Was that the help? Because I was trying to set up something with the Google Home Mini. Yeah, because you're all about yourself. Yep, again, again about myself. The Google Help itself actually changed over to a URL that said Google Nest. And the top left corner said Google Nest before they actually announced it. So another example of Google completely botching something to do with marketing or promotion or anything like this. Because they, they continue to botch all of these, these things that come up. To be fair, who cares if a day before they officially announced that they changed the URLs on the help page as long as you're getting your help that you click on the button for? Because they preempted themselves. This is just typical Google. Not who cares? I care. I, I mean, I'm a Google fanboy on some of this, but you still got the content you wanted. I guess. But if you <laughs> were very disappointed to hear that either Nest or Google Home was either staying or going away, one of the two, you'll be pleased to know they're both going away and it is now Google Nest. Google Nest. Should they stay or should they go? I am interested to see the fact that they're doing this. I actually think it, it kind of makes sense because the whole Google Home thing, I don't know, the name Google Home is kind of weird because really a lot of these products, they are meant for your home, but it could almost be 
misleading if they go into something that is more software based or something that might not necessarily be directly for the home market. So Google Nest makes sense because, you know, there, there are businesses and stuff that use Nest products. I w- what I do want to say, though, with this is that uh, I think that Google is probably going to release a bunch of new products soon. This is my theory, a complete 100% made up conspiracy theory. And I say this because there's been a bunch of sales in recent on these. And we've heard a few news stories back and forth about branding changes and in different countries using different names. And I think that the fact that there's been inconsistency is probably been because a bunch of people are like a bunch of different parts of the organization are going and just sort of patching holes until they get to the next thing. They know that there's another line coming out soon. And let's be honest, the Google Home has it's time for a refresh. It's been around for a while. It's been around long enough that Amazon was able to to rip off what they did well and do it better. So I hope you're right that they are about to do a refresh of some kind. We get some new products. But we've been saying that for years about Nest products and what we get just new variants on their outdoor camera that cost more money that arguably don't do anything different. And let's be honest, this is the cynical nature of me. Google can't keep a secret on any of their hardware. It all leaks out. We already know half of what's in the Pixel 4 from leaks, presumably, but we know nothing about these new products they might be dropping. I hope you're right, Stephen, but the fact that nothing has leaked that I've seen about new Nest products right now makes me think that I don't think we're getting anything anytime soon. I hope I hope we are. I think anything past Google I.O. that was announced isn't happening, though. This is kind of the problem, though, with Google is that they're great at coming up with concepts and ideas, but and, and, and they, they can launch products. The problem is they really don't have very much success with executing products, launching products, and taking care of those products. Once it's launched and out there, oh boy, that's it. That's all you get. You know, that is a fair point. I just think that the home mini is is dated now. Uh, I think that they completely screwed up with the physical controls aspect. And I think that there is a bigger demand for some other smart products. I think Amazon's shown that. And I, I've said it before. I personally, in my experiences, prefer the Amazon's smart home integration stuff. But I really, really want to be a Google user because so much of my other stuff is Google. Like, I, I look forward to the day, hopefully, of dropping my Amazon smart stuff. But it's not going to happen for me personally if they're not keeping up with Amazon and Amazon's putting other products out. So it'll be interesting to see what ends up happening with them. And I just I hope that this is something that somehow has been kept a secret. So one thing to consider, though, is we are the edge case for folks when it comes to smart home technology and things like that. We're the early adopters. We're the ones that geek out over. Oh, my God, I can't believe they're building this insert random crazy product name out here here rather. General users are like, hey, I should get one of those Google, Amazon home devices or whatever, because they all blur together as to what they are. And I think if you're talking from a general user perspective, when it comes to both the dot and the home mini, that twenty five to fifty dollar price range, depending on when they're on sale, that's the perfect point of entry for folks and common, not common folks, but less of the enthusiasts are more interested in that kind of stuff. Whereas you and I would be really interested in new product, new hardware that does all this cool stuff your average consumer probably doesn't care that much right now. So the question is, how much should they cater to those of us that were the early adopters that are now like super geeked out on it? We're not exactly the target demo anymore. They've already established themselves based off of folks like us being out there and being the evangelist from like, this stuff is so cool. You guys need to give it a try. 
were not as important. And maybe I'm just being cynical by saying that, but I think they're targeting a market that isn't necessarily the super tech enthusiast. Did you say that smart stuff's not cool? Wow. Wow. You are definitely not going to be talking smart stuff in the future. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> I've seeded that crown to others now. Moving on to the extra extra section here. We just got a couple of quick things we're going to go ahead and run through. Number one comes out of the world of Microsoft. Chris Farrell, you were so excited to talk about this thing, weren't you? Oh, this was almost my news. And hey, guys, it should surprise no one. Windows updates are still broken and breaking things that are important. What did we find out this last time around? Yeah, there's a latest update that is KB4501375 that may break what is called the Remote Access Connection Manager on Windows 10. Why is this an important thing? Yeah, if this Rasmin, as it's called, is broken, you can't run VPNs on your machines. So this last update could have potentially broken the tool that allows you to run a VPN on your machine, which could be for simple things like I'm in the airport, I want to use the free Wi-Fi, but I don't want to be on an open connection where everyone can see what I'm doing, throw on your VPN and connect that way to the open Wi-Fi, and you're going to be safe. It could be for people with slightly nefarious reasons who are like, I want to watch Star Trek Discovery, but I live in the United States. I'm going to go pretend like I'm in the UK. But regardless, VPNs, they're commonly used by many people, business travelers, tech enthusiasts, common users. Business users in general. Yes, business users use them a lot. And here's the sticking point. Here's where it gets even more crazy. The research that folks have done right now is showing that this uh, Windows update bug that breaks Rasmin only affects Windows 10 Enterprise right now, it looks like. So if you're on an enterprise machine or your company manages your fleet of Windows 10 machines and laptops and says, here, take this with you on travel, your company VPN may not work properly if you've updated to the latest version of Windows. So uh, God bless you IT managers out there. Good luck. I don't know how you survive in this current world where Windows updates tend to break something with almost every build that comes out. It's got to be frustrating and Microsoft really needs to start figuring things out better because breaking VPNs, while it may not sound like a big deal, when you start thinking about the business community, it is a big deal. I have to say, like I am one of the people for a very long time that has constantly ridiculed organizations that have very dated software. And I still continue to do that. Anybody running Windows XP right now is an idiot. Anybody running Windows Vista is an idiot. Very, I, I will almost say that people who are running, running Windows 7 also screwed up and should have gone to 8. However, I will stop. I will stop short of saying that they're idiots. You will. I, I, I will because I don't think that corporations, I think corporations had a reason to stay with 7. However, our users... I, I users too. I, I understand eight was around very limited. I will say though, anybody running Internet Explorer is idiots. I will say Internet Explorer. Internet Explorer. I'm not talking Edge. I'm talking Internet Explorer because these are things that are long deprecated and people need to have shut them down, especially on a corporate level. Microsoft execs have come out and said, "Stop using Internet Explorer. Stop using XP. They're vulnerable." There's all of these reasons why. However, I will say that I actually understand corporations that haven't gone to Windows 10 for this reason. I completely understand. I still think that people need to realize that 7 is in end of life and is like 
pretty close to being expired. And so you'll have to start corporations have to start paying for that support. But I don't blame them for not going to Windows 10 when you have stuff like this happen because the corporations depend on like the VPN, like you said. So mind blowing to me. And I I think that uh, if you're running Windows XP, you're an idiot. There you go. I think I think they need to address what the underlying problem is or figure out what the underlying problem is that causes this to happen. Is it that they're trying to do too many updates at one time on too rapid a pace? There's an underlying problem here. I don't know what it is, but I don't remember in Windows 10 and Windows 8 hearing as much about, hey, this update went out and it basically hosed my system. I mean, we've talked about it on this show before. We've made a joke about, it. hey, a new Windows 10 update came out. Oh, I guess it means I've got to reset up everything on my podcasting rig because it changes all my defaults and everything. It's dumb, weird stuff, and they're missing it somehow. It's the and fact that this is still going on years after the launch of Windows 10. Okay, so I can, I could forgive them after like maybe a year or two, but it's been more than two years now, and they're still having updates that are very much buggy. I do have a conspiracy theory on on what could be happening. I think that they they stepped in the pile of doo-doo because here's the thing is if this was a previous version of Windows, Millennium, uh, Vista. <laughs> it's Windows ME. They would have moved on. They would have gone and they would have made a new version and said, we know we screwed up. This one's better. And, and generally speaking, when Microsoft screwed up, they did make the next one better. That was pretty consistent. Even Windows 8, I liked it. I thought that it was better than 7, but they did they did do a lot of things better with the user interface for Windows 10 and, and overcoming the things that people hated in 8, right? Microsoft has a habit of when they put out something that they hate fixing it in the next version. But what they did with Windows 10 was they came out and they went, this is the last version. They, they tried to do the Mac OS model where it's like... It's Windows as a service it's Windows now. as a service this will always be updated. So they're kind of stuck working on that that overall architecture, I think. And, and it's like, usually we would be on to 11. They'd be like, sorry, we screwed up 10. 11's better. And that's my theory on it. That's my theory on sort of what's going wrong here is they're so invested on keeping that model going. But who knows? Moving on to our last extra, extra news point here. Oh, we'll continue down the Microsoft train just because I know that Chris and Suncast wanted to talk all about this. <laughs> There's some emojis. Microsoft's again late to the game, right, Suncast? So Microsoft released a new beta version of the company's Switchboard keyboard application for Android recently. And with this new beta release comes a new feature called Puppets, which is their... An emoji feature or is that thing still a thing? I, God, I, just, I wish it wasn't. I just don't understand because I thought, yeah, it was neat and novel and then Apple did it for a little bit while, but nobody really gives a crap. And now here it is. Guess what? Microsoft has an emoji. So I mean, puppets, uh, <laughs> I don't know what it is <laughs> and why anybody gives a crap, but hey, it's part of the Swift key keyboard now for Android. So. Yay. Good job, Microsoft, for a feature that nobody wanted. Samsung's still doubling down on a bit more of an emojis and stuff like that, too. And I'm like, when Apple did it, people were like, OK, this is cool. But they stopped talking about it within six months. Why do we care? Why are we breaking Windows updates to put an emojis in friggin Swift key? Make Windows work again. Make Windows great again. Screw an emojis. Wow, you're pretty hostile. I'll say this. I think I think like Bitmojis 
are neat. And, and the fact that you can customize them basically to your heart's content. That's neat. These emojis things. Why? I but don't know. Again, we are not the target audience for this product, though, either. Let's keep that in mind also. We are three dudes in our, what, 30s here? Mm-hmm. We're not the ones that are going to be like chatting with our friends and sending an emojis of ourselves. I think the target audience is probably a good 20 years younger than us that are the targets for this. Besides, everybody knows there's only one animated anything that I send to these guys. And let's just say the picture is taken below the table. While you may know Chris loves phones, tablets, and other gadgets, did you know he's also a master tap dancer? It's time for him to combine the two passions in a segment he calls Chris Taps That App. Sorry, guys. I like dancing live for you guys. I haven't had a chance to do it in a while. Now I got to dance live. We're going to talk about an app this week. We haven't done it in a while, like Steven had said, but this time we're exploring a world where this app can touch iOS, Android, and web browser. We're going across the gamut. Everyone will be able to potentially use this one. And this is going to sound a little weird that I'm talking about a fitness app, but we are talking about an app called MyFitnessPal. For those that are not familiar, here is the straight definition from wikipedia.org. MyFitnessPal is a smartphone app and website that tracks diet and exercise to determine optimal caloric intake and nutrients for the user's goals and uses gamification elements to motivate users. Users can either scan the barcodes of various food items or manually add them in the database of over 5 million different foods. Working in in conjunction with over 50 devices and apps, including Fitbit and Garmin wearable devices, users can synchronize their health data to third-party devices for easier mobility. And like I mentioned, it is available on iOS and Android and accessible via the web. This is an app that was created in 2005, so it is an older app, and then in February 2015, purchased by Under Armour. Yes, the company that makes various kinds of sporting apparel, workout gear, things like that. They did buy a fitness app. It sort of makes sense for an acquisition. Now, you guys look, you probably look at me and you go, why the hell is Chris Farrell talking about a fitness app? That's a reasonable, reasonable question to ask. It's not what you expect me to talk about. And to be honest, I'm not a power user of my fitness app, but I can give you the perspective of a non-gym junkie, a regular user, and why you might want to use it. So here's the question that I would pose and or might be posed rather and I'll answer is why did I start using my fitness pal probably six, six to eight months ago. I would have to go back and check for sure, but it's been at least half a year. Well, honestly, because you got married for <laughs> before I got married, but that has a lot of reason about why I did do it. Well, it's more my honeymoon that has a reason, and I'll get to that here in a second. But honestly, for me, really? my fitness pal, yes, my fitness pal is a tool to hold myself accountable for what I was eating because I like food. It's how I got my current figure. I like sweets. I like salty things. I like steak. I like food too much, but it was a way to hold myself accountable. And yes, I was getting married, so I wanted to trim down a little bit. But more importantly, the folks I work with know I had this going. Chris, Chris, you're married now. You don't have to stay in shape. <laughs> I know, I know, but I'm still working at it. I'm still working at it. You're also past the annulment period too, so you're really yeah, safe. That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> The other reason why I was exploring this was for what I called, and my friends at work heard me call, Operation Don't Be Too Fat to Ride the Harry Potter Roller Coaster. (laughs) Yes, if you are not aware, 
the Harry Potter roller coasters in the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, both at Universal Orlando and Hollywood, the seats are kind of small and restrictive. And especially when they first opened, there were people of a larger size, of which I call myself, that could not ride them because they could not get the lap belts or the shoulder restraints to go down into the proper locking position. So it was unsafe and they would sit in line for 45 minutes, get up there and be like, yeah, you can't ride. So part of why I did it was I was getting married. And the other reason was because I wanted to ride these damn roller coasters when I was in Orlando. And spoiler alert, I got to ride all the roller coasters in part because of how this app helped me out. (laughs) Give you one of those there. Yes. Well, thank you. Uh, Okay. So first off, I don't even want to talk about the app because I didn't know that this was happening with, with the Harry Potter thing. That's crazy. That's absolutely nuts. And uh, somebody really dropped the ball on that if they have not seen um, the North American uh, so, user base. But anyways, to be fair, they have since the rides originally opened, put adjusted seats in and like the back row of the Gringotts experience and on the couple other ones that are larger seats to accommodate people. And honestly, part of the problem with one of them, it's uh, Harry Potter, the Forbidden Journey, I think. It's more of a height restriction because you've got a shoulder bar that pulls down over your shoulders. And if you have a long back like I do, you have to really slouch in the seat. It's not necessarily a matter of that I was fat. It's a matter of that I had a high back, a tall back that made it hard to fit in that seat. So you're also trying to become shorter? Well, I had to slouch to be able to fit in that one. And it kind of helped that I'd gotten rid of a little bit of the weight so I'd fit in the chair better. But that's neither here nor there. (laughs) Let's go back into how this app worked for me. So primarily why I started using it is because I had a few friends in the past that are like, I looked at them and was like, damn, you're looking trim. What have you been working? What have you been doing? And they're like, honestly, I've just kind of been better about what I eat. And I said, well, what's your secret? And I've had at least three different people that said, I use this MyFitnessPal app. So what is it you do with this? Basically, I use it predominantly for food tracking, like I mentioned. So whenever I eat breakfast or lunch or a snack or something like that, I pull up the app and I use the little diary feature to put in what I ate. It's really easy to add things like that because you can use the camera as a barcode scanner. So if you have a barcode on something, you just scan the packaging. It brings up the nutrition facts and you basically put in, here's how many servings I had of this. So for instance, say you wanted to have a package of Reese's peanut butter cups, you'd scan it and you'd see a serving as one peanut butter cup. And you're like, well, I'm eating the whole thing. You'd put two in there. It would put the calorie count in there, the fat percentages, things like that. It would all be tracked in your food tracker and you get to set goals for what your daily caloric intake is based off your activity level, things like that. And it recommends do not exceed this level of calories. And you go, okay, I'm good with that. So the first thing I really started doing was every time I was eating something, I started putting it in the app and this might actually be an indicator of how lazy I am. Sometimes I was like, I just don't want to put this in the app because I don't have to look it up. So I was like, screw it. I'm not having that granola bar because I don't know what the barcode is. And I've got to look it up myself. So there was actually things that sat in my desk at work because I didn't have a barcode, didn't want to be bothered to look it up. So it was effective in that regard as well. But I will give them credit. This lookup tool that they have in there, it has tons of things. I know the Wikipedia said over 5 million items. It's probably more than that. And the nice thing is if you scan a barcode and something doesn't exist in there, you can then create the item. It gets added to their database with the nutrition facts you get off like the back of the box or the back of the wrapper and things like that. So it is a community that is constantly adding and updating nutrition facts on things, which makes it really easy to keep track of things. The other thing that really helped is I'll continue with the Reese's peanut butter cup analogy is I could be really craving a peanut butter cup. And before I'd open it, I'd pull up the app and say, okay, here's everything I've eaten today. I'm a little far ahead on things. But if I take an extra 15 minute walk, when I get home, 
I know that that'll burn off roughly the calories of this peanut butter cup. And I'll be like, hell yeah, I'm having me a peanut butter cup. So it also helped me get smarter <laughs> about saying, while I can't be good all the time, I can kind of take actions to be better when I'm bad, if that makes sense, to offset the bad things that I've done. So it really helped me a lot when it came to tracking my food and holding myself accountable and not like binge eating, just be like, I'm going to have all of this. And the next thing you know, you've demolished a bag of candy because then you have to put it in the app and you're like, oh my God, what did I do to myself? I'm never going to be able to work this off. And how it also helped is that my fitness pal syncs with a variety of different things. In my case, I have it synced to Google Fit. Google Fit I have on my phone. I also have it on my smartwatch right here. And when I would go and take a 10 minute walk break at work or something like that, I'd pull up Google Fit on there and I'd start a walk a, a walking workout and things like that so that it would track all of my steps, track heart rate, things like that. And it takes that information and then offset my calorie count because there's a separate section of the diary that is your exercise. And it takes your steps through the day and estimates, estimates rather how many calories that knocks off. It takes your exercise and estimates as how that knocks off. So you can kind of go throughout the day and say, hey, I've taken 5,000 steps today. That's knocked off 350 calories. I'm in good shape. I can have this treat I want or something like that. And you have pretty much a running, uh, running calorie total all day. It's actually really helped me a lot. And the nice thing is it fits it. This app rather connects to all sorts of different fitness trackers and wearables. It works with Fitbits, Google Fit, Apple Health, RunKeeper, Garmin, all sorts of things. Pretty much any of the bigger fitness apps that are out there, they have hooks into my fitness pal. It's one of the things that Under Armour pushes about it is saying, hey, we can make this work with whatever your app is so that you can track your food intake, so that you can track your exercise, things like that. And for a lot of people, I haven't made use of it. There's actually a social element to uh, my fitness pal. You can make friends with people who have similar goals and it'll share that Chris just completed a workout and burned 3000 calories or some nonsense like that. And you can encourage each other. You can share whether you've met your goal for food for the day. I didn't mess with the social aspect because I looked at it this way. What I'm doing with this app is my own business. I don't really want to share it with folks, but I know there are a lot of other folks who've said the social aspect to my fitness pal and the fact that they wanted to compete with their friends, for lack of a better term, to meet their goals kind of helped hold them accountable. So it's an interesting twist on things. Okay. I already have all that information anyway, Chris. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you already hacked my Google Fit information, yeah. I'm sure. So like I said, I have Google Fit linked to my fitness pal. So anytime I like weigh myself, I can update my uh, weight and my blood pressure and stuff like that in Google Fit. It syncs over in a matter of minutes over into my fitness pal. And it pretty much aggregates all my fitness data into one view and gives me an idea of how things are working for me, whether I'm on track to meet my goals for the day or not. This is all for free that I've brought up. Everything I did using my fitness pal was on the free tier because I didn't feel like I needed the pay tier. So how does Under Armour make money off of me? They've got targeted ads and stuff like that. I think they assume I'm going to click on some of the ads and buy stuff from time to time, but they also have a premium paid tier of my fitness pal. Like I said, I didn't use it, but what it does is it gives you more granular nutrition facts where you can break down some of the uh, more specific things like fat percentage or set goals based off you only want to eat so much saturated fat in a day. You can be more granular than just saying, I want to hit this calorie marker. It also gives you, uh, removes the ads and adds more verified foods as they put it. So it's foods that the MyFitnessPal team has verified as being 100% accurate versus community driven. I, I can't give you my impressions on it, guys. I can say it exists out there. If you're in the MyFitnessPal world and you want more granular control over your goals and things like that, 
it might be worth it. It's $9.99 a month or $49.99 a year. But I think in a lot of cases, depending on what you want to do, you can kind of get away with just using the free version. If, if you're looking for something to hold you accountable and to track your basic exercise and give you an idea of whether you're on track for meeting your goals or not, the free version worked for me. I will say that much. It tracked things relatively properly for me so long as I actually was honest about the inputs that I was putting in there. If you cheat and be like, I ate a whole bag of M&Ms, but I want to put that put half a bag of on, or excuse me, I only want to say I ate half a bag. Well, you're lying to yourself and the numbers aren't going to pan out right. And in fact, whenever it does its estimates based off of how much weight you've lost, it kind of reminds you, this is only as accurate as you being trustworthy as to what you're putting in here. If you lie to yourself and put bad numbers in there, it's going to tell you you're going to lose more weight, but it's not right because you haven't put the accurate numbers in there. It worked for me on the free tier, like I said. The biggest thing for me was holding me accountable, combining my food intake with the exercise I do throughout the day. I'm lucky enough that on busy days at work, I get a lot of steps in because I'm having to walk across the office to collaborate with people on things. So I can get on a good day at work about 8,000 steps in but throughout a whole day, which I think is pretty awesome. It's also nice because when I started getting better and going to the gym one to three days a week, I used Google Fit to track my workouts. So I could be like, I'm going to go walk the elliptical. I could set my watch the elliptical and it would calculate all that information while I was doing it. As soon as I was done, it would push that fitness information over to my fitness pal, adjust and update what my calorie burn estimates were. So I would know, oh, wow, I did a lot of work today. I can totally have that bowl of ice cream when I go home, for instance. It worked for me. I can't say it's going to work for everyone, but if you are pretty much honest with yourself as you do it and try and put in accurate numbers and say, hey, I know I had two candy bars because it was a bad day at work or I was stressed. You put in accurate numbers, you can see the work you need to do to offset what you've done. And like I said, it, it made a huge difference for me personally. When it was all said and done, when I went to Orlando, because that's where our honeymoon was, like I said, Operation Don't Be Too Fat to Ride the Harry Potter <laughs> roller coaster, it, it worked for me. I was able to fit in the things. And when I actually checked what I'd done in the scale in about five and a half, six months, I dropped 40 pounds with a combination of working out and holding myself accountable by putting these things into the app. So like I said, it may not work for everyone, but I think it was a very powerful tool to keep me motivated and to keep me on track and to maybe not necessarily make me feel as bad if I had a bad day because I could go back and look at the day previously and be like, man, I was actually pretty good this day. It doesn't offset me being bad the next day, but I feel less bad about the fact that I just ate a bunch of bad food and lounged around on the couch and was a lazy bum. I like it if you're looking to try and get a little healthier, track your food intake, things like that. It's worth giving a try. Now, I do have to mention these caveats be aware of. Like I said, it's ad supported, so they are going to sell you ads. That is how they make their money on the free tier. And I think it was about two years ago, they did have a breach and some other information was lost and exposed. So much as any other kind of social media service or app service, it could get breached. They could lose PII and your information could be floating out there. So it's something to consider if those trade-offs are worth it to you. I am really happy with how this app worked out for me. I've gotten back from the honeymoon and while I'm not being quite as good as I was previously to that, I'm still using my fitness pal to still hold myself accountable when it comes to what I'm eating and how much of it I may be eating. So powerful tool. I would recommend it. I know that in the past that Naki on ATGN had talked about using it before and had luck with it. Uh, give it a try if this is something you're wanting to do. 
Well, thank you very much, Chris Farrell, for uh, <laughs> you son of a talking all about your fitness app. I greatly appreciate that. And uh, for some of us, we just <laughs> stick to our vegetables. Well, I mean, it is a vegetable, just of the fried variety. So <laughs> that is fair. And if you want, I have a sneak preview for what will be coming up in the next installment of Chris Taps That App. So I mentioned in passing to you guys last week via text message thread, I did officially a week ago Saturday, cut the cable and I removed cable. I am now streaming things. So eventually, once I have a bit more experience, the next Chris Taps That App is going to be my experience with YouTube TV, which is their streaming service analogous to say Sling TV, PlayStation View, DirecTV Now, and things like that. So. Stay tuned for a future installment of the GunnaGeek.com show where I give my impressions on YouTube now and compare it to some of the other services I may actually try the demos on between now and then. Or we might just make this an entire running series. I haven't decided. Depends on how many of these other streaming services I try. I look forward to the part where you talk about how you couldn't watch TV because your internet went down last week when we were supposed to record the show. I had a I had a half bar of LTE if I sat by my window and it was enough to stream sports. <laughs> well, we do look forward to that. We've all we're all about the streaming stuff here, and you know we like to help uh, help support people in their endeavor to stick it to the man. And so I hope that you can help do that, Chris Farrell. To stick it to the man. That's what I'm here for. Isn't July cord cutting month? Is is it? I believe it is. I'd seen something to that effect. Oh. Yeah. Come and join the movement. All right. Well, Suncast, thank you very much for coming on here today. We do greatly appreciate you doing that. And as a reminder, if you want to follow Suncast, you can find him at gfqnetwork.com or go to the local park. That's always a possibility with Suncast. Just bring lollipops. You are spelled S-U-N-K-A-S-T, and uh, people can follow you on Twitter. And uh, Yes, they can. Encourage people to do that, because there's always something that Suncast is ranting or raving about. I, I, try, to, I try to keep that to a minimum. <laughs> but seriously, thank you very much for filling in here. And for the audio listener, if you've never checked out the video side of things, uh, you really want to do so whenever Suncast is on, because he has the best backdrop out of all of us. On that note, for episode number 294 of the officialgunnageek.com show, I'm Stephen John Drew saying I've got some black and white money in front of me. I think someone printed it on like a laser. It's really weird. It's odd. I'm Chris Farrell saying I got the better lollipops. Tootsie Roll Pops. Come see me, folks. I'm not shy. I'm holding back my awesomeness so I don't intimidate you. Bye. See ya. Thanks for checking out another episode of the official gunageek.com show. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can always join us for our live recording sessions, which stream Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern at www.geeks.live. And remember, you can find our full back catalog at gunageek.com forward slash show. If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week. 